0: Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. We're a periodical covering the changes in money, which are getting faster and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Payments get faster and cheaper. Cash goes out of fashion, and mobile payments take over. Some people are on the inside track, others risk being left behind. Money attracts the cleverest criminals, who always seem to stay ahead of the game. Our podcast takes a big picture look at these trends. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government, and society with it. Each week, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Dan Davis, a former central banker, investment banker, And more recently, a journalist and author who's written a book called Lying for Money, How Legendary Frauds Reveal the Workings of Our World. Dan, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you please start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Uh, Sure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I uh, started my career basically in the uh, minor leagues of uh, British stockbroking, which is an excellent place to learn about all sorts of uh, funny activity. Um, I worked for a while for the Bank of England as an economist for the bank regulators, and then I uh, kind of spent most of the uh, 2000s um, working for a couple of uh, big investment banks covering the build-up to and fallout from the uh, global financial crisis and uh, kind of trying to uh, understand what was going on and make money for it from it. After about uh, 2014, 2015, I realized I'd had about as much fun out of that as I was going to get, and so I kind of left the city to travel and write books, of which the first one was a book called Lying for Money, How Fraud Explains the World We Live In, uh, which was uh, published um, last year, and uh, that's Uh, kind of what I do now.
0: Uh, and I, I read it earlier this year. I really enjoyed it. It's uh, kind of almost been described as a kind of encyclopedia of, uh, of fraud. So it's almost like a handbook of fraud if you wanted to to commit one, as well as a way as well as a way of looking, uh, you know, from the outside to try and spot frauds. Um, what what got you interested in the topic of fraud, well, financial frauds?
1: I had uh, I had a ringside seat at some of the biggest ones that there have ever been. Um, if you kind of think back to the LIBOR scandal. And in the UK, the payment protection insurance uh, kind of mis-selling affair, as they call it, mis-selling being a term of art used by the regulators to mean that it's a fraud, but they don't plan on going to the trouble of any criminal trials. Then uh, you actually end up seeing that there's quite a lot of interesting economics to these things, Uh, but it's not really the kind of economics that you end up learning much about in uh, university courses because uh, unless you get right up to the very specialist levels of game theory people generally assume for purposes of economic modeling that all of the economic agents know what's going on and that nobody's lying to anyone and then you get out into the real world and you know huge amounts of the system are based around the fact that people lie all the time and you know a huge percentage of the money that's spent in the financial sector is spent on checking up to try and make sure you're not being defrauded. So over the course of my career, I started thinking, oh, actually, this sort of thing is quite interesting. Um, let's maybe take a look at some of it from an economic point of view. And you know that was the idea for the book.
0: So in in the book, you reach the, you know, what I found, and I think many people find it quite a surprising conclusion, is that the authorities, uh, governments, regulators, and so on, should not try to stamp out fraud completely. There is actually an equilibrium level of fraud in any country. Could you explain to listeners why the optimal level of fraud in any economy is not zero? Uh, Sure. Um, I mean, this is one of the things that uh,
1: I kind of wanted to emphasize in the book I mean, to a large extent, the reason is that the optimal level of anything isn't, is unlikely to be zero. The optimal level of coronavirus might not be zero. The optimal level of uh, sovereign debt crises uh, might not be zero. But with fraud, there is a particular issue, which is that the more you take precautions against it, the more people will tend to ignore the official system. So we have one really clear example of this in the um, dark markets that people used to uh, trade drugs for Bitcoin on illegally. Those had fantastically worked out technological preventions against fraud. If everyone had followed the instructions on something like Silk Road, no one would ever have got scammed because they had a very sophisticated technological escrow system. The trouble was that it was sophisticated, and it was a pain in the neck to use, so nobody used it. Everyone just made side deals and emailed each other Bitcoin, and as a result of that, fraud was absolutely rife on that market. So you can get a generalized version of that. The more you try to crack down on fraud through means that are costly or difficult, the more that people will avoid it.
0: In the book you find, you provide you know many fascinating examples of, of uh, financial frauds over the that have taken place over the course of centuries uh, you know ranging from people inventing imaginary countries in Latin America to people um, you know cheating people out of uh, cheating others out of um, money on the basis of fake collateral uh, to accounting frauds. You know they, they kind of go on forever. These uh, these stories, um, and then you say that there are you can you can kind of reduce all these uh, historical uh, episodes or all kinds of financial frauds, but to, to four basic uh, prototypes. You know what what are those four models? Well, the way that I kind of think about it is that
1: all fraud is basically, as the title of the book says, lying for money. You're exploiting someone's trust in order to get them to transfer valuable goods to you, even though they wouldn't have done that if they were fully informed about the state of the world. The way that I would break them up, though, is not so much in a criminological way as in an economic way, because I would look at the degree of sophistication or abstractness of the trust that you're exploiting, So at kind of level one of the thing, I would say you have what I would call a long firm or a bust out. Just simply the kind of fraud where you obtain valuable goods or cash on the basis of a promise for the future. And then at the future date, you don't carry out the thing you promised to do. You don't pay for the goods or you uh, don't deliver the goods in return for the money. And that's Fairly straightforward trust between one person and another person, and it's, to my mind, the most basic kind of financial crime. Going a little bit more abstract than that, you have what I'd call a counterfeit, where you are taking advantage of an institution of the economy to produce something that is fake, either something that is fake value in itself or something which falsely confirms the value of something else. So there, people's trust is trust in the overall verification system, and you're exploiting that in some way or another. As you get even more abstract, you get uh, something that uh, the bank regulator Bill Black invented the term for when he was busting uh, savings and loan frauds in the 1980s, which is called a control fraud, that's one more level of abstraction because now the fraudster is exploiting their control of an economic entity, usually a corporation, to make it carry out individual activities that look legitimate, but where the overall scheme is meant to transfer value to the fraudster. So it's your typical bank fraud where someone's constantly making huge loans to bankrupt property developers and profiting by paying out dividends from a bank which is gradually running itself into the ground. It's mm-hmm. that kind of entity where someone's using abusing the responsibility that's been delegated to them and so the trust is in the overall economic system of a capitalist economy. Finally, you get to What's recognisably a fraud, but it's a weird kind of fraud, where you get things which aren't necessarily crimes at all, but which have been made crimes because they're what I call market crimes. They're places where the particular rules of one economic sector have become so important that they get raised to the level of uh, criminal law. So that's where you have things like insider dealing. That's where you have things like LIBOR. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, a long firm is pretty obviously breaking the commandment, thou shalt not steal. Um, a counterfeit is breaking the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. But there really isn't any commandment saying, thou shalt not trade securities while in possession of material non-public information. That wasn't even a crime in the UK until the 1990s. It wasn't a crime in New Zealand until 2008. Um, And at that point, what you're saying is that the entire, you know, effectively rule of law and order is something that is a massive, you know, economy-wide system of trust, and you're... uh, exploiting people's trust that the overall system has been set up to be in some ill-defined sense fair to them
0: yeah so the, this this kind of most abstract level of fraud the market uh, crime uh, can really go on indefinitely unless there are some efforts to stamp it out whereas the, the first fraud um, the long term presumably has only a limited time span you know at some point there is a, you get to a point where whoever you know, you've borrowed money from. Um, wants to have the money back, and then the fraud is revealed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You have to pay it back, or you have the sort of Bernard Madoff situation where there's no set redemption date, but yeah. compound interest makes the whole thing grow so huge that it falls over under its own weight. But yeah, yeah. you know, I, I want and- to
0: ask you about interest, uh, Dan, because you, you 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 point out in the book that compound interest is the enemy of the fraud, because uh, if you're not the the fraud itself is not generating any returns. So, you know, at some point, that's going to lead the fraud to be exposed. Um, What what does that say about our current environment? You know, we've got zero interest rates and, you know, even negative interest rates in many countries. Are we in a kind of golden era of, of fraud on the basis of, you know, not having any interest rates? Well, potentially, you know, it's a lot easier to borrow. It's easy to borrow money at the
1: moment. And anytime it's easy to borrow money, uh, you've got one of the key building blocks of most frauds uh going there uh, I used to work with an economist who claimed that he had a monetary policy rule uh this was back in the 1990s which was that anytime Donald Trump is able to borrow money to build anything interest rates are too low um <laughs> and- You know, there's a certain amount of attractiveness to that kind of idea. It got reborn as macroprudential regulation uh, for the uh, regulation nerds. Um, The thing is, though, that the kind of compound interest that builds up on a Ponzi scheme or on a Madoff or on any kind of fraud, it's always quite a decent positive percentage number because the first kind of compound interest that you have to cover... Is the amount of cash that the fraudster is extracting themselves? So, if you kind of if you take like I don't know a million dollars worth of Bernard Madoff style investment fund and claim to your investors that you've earned a ten percent return on it, then the next year you have to steal one point one million dollars, even if you didn't take out any money yourself. If you wanted to take out even twenty grand yourself then next year you've got to uh, steal one point to, you know, you've effectively got a 12% interest rate that you've got to make the next year rather than a 10%. So um, I think it's not so much the level of interest rates that might be helping people carry out frauds as the simple fact that money is being shoveled out the door. You know, and yeah. for, for a large extent, a lot of the reason why money is being shoveled out the door is that fraud is the ultimate shovel-ready project? If you yeah. want to stimulate the economy because there's a pandemic going on, uh, fraudsters, to my mind, they spend money just like anyone else. Yeah, so
0: you, and, they're, and they're and they're quick to set up their set up their services and provide you know what what uh, what people are asking for.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. So I mean, you don't necessarily in a pandemic lending program you don't necessarily want to have a whole load of fraud controls on there up front because, and this comes back to what we were talking about earlier with the equilibrium condition, you often have to ask yourself, do I want to absolutely eliminate fraud or do I want to be rich? Um, Really one of the fundamental things that comes back to me in the conclusion of the whole book is in the Victorian London Something like one sixth of all companies floated on the London Stock Exchange were frauds. Yeah, um, in the kind of nineteenth-century New York when they were building the railroad road boom. Uh, more or less, every railroad company at some point or other was a fraud. Yeah, but the railways still got built. You know, if, if you look at those times and all you're concentrating on is the frauds, then you're missing the big picture. Similarly, yeah. with the dot-com era, you know, we had huge amounts of fraud, but the internet did get built. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, this kind of aggressive control approach
0: is not the right situation for the time and place. So that's a rather uncomfortable um, conclusion, perhaps, from looking at, you know, economy-wide or market-wide fraud that actually has some... It's its clearly a fraud, but it's also have, has some, you know, some longer-term benefits, potentially.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The... Um, I mean, the way I would almost uh, describe it is you think of two uh, countries that couldn't be more different from each other in terms of their overall governance environment, and you've got Canada and Greece. Canada, paradigmatically, one of the world's big high-trust societies. Greece, again, paradigmatically, one of the world's low-trust societies. But in Greece ship owners will do deals for millions of dollars on the basis of a handshake. In Canada, you have absolute rife securities fraud and corporate governance that is you know, known worldwide to be an absolute joke. And the reason for that is precisely that Canada is a high-trust society and Greece is a low-trust society. In Greece... If you show up wanting to borrow a few million dollars for a business project, people are going to check you out. They're going to check your family out, you know, right back to the uh, birth of Christ. No one's going to do business with you unless they absolutely know who you are. In Canada, you show up with a polite manner and a reasonable quality suit. And Canadians are going to, in general, give you the benefit of the doubt. There was a wonderful story uh, last year or the year before where a Canadian university lost something like 200,000 Canadian dollars to a fraud, and they lost it because they were having a new building uh, built, and someone sent them an email saying, hi there, Bill, could you just take note of our new bank details and send all the pavements to this account from now on? And they did. Uh, you know, th- you know that there's nothing more to the story. That was the fraud. Um, it kind of sounds crazy, and obviously yeah. people do get defrauded in Canada a lot. I got defrauded in Canada myself, actually, while I was writing the book, uh, by a website that was uh, selling Canadian business visas for 10 times their true cost. But on the other hand, would you rather live in Canada or would you rather right. live in Greece from a purely economic point of view? Um, the Canadian system... Produces a lot of certain kinds of fraud, particularly securities fraud,
0: but it seems to work for Canadians. Yeah, yeah. So lots of there the are inevitable trade offs uh, in, in in looking at sort of the different types of fraud and different markets, different economies. There's no right or wrong way of doing Absolutely, it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One one of the other things that caught my attention in your book is that you know it's um, we talk about victims of crime and victims of fraud, but fraud is a particular kind of crime because the the victim not only consents to the criminal act. It voluntarily transfers the money or valuable goods to the criminal, so it's a, it almost makes you wonder: is this really a crime? Because if the victim is the the uh, you know caught out because of his uh, his or her own greed, doesn't that kind of shine a different light on the whole uh, episode?
1: Well, to a certain extent, and in some cases, yes. You know, there's certainly a lot of questions over. I mean, again, in the Bernard Madoff insolvency. Uh, there were a lot of questions asked about people who had put in like a million dollars 20 years ago, taken out three million dollars worth of dividends, and were now filing a claim with the insolvency uh, uh, practitioner for the ten million dollars that Bernard Madoff had once lied to them that they had. Um, yeah. And in a couple of those cases, I think the uh, bankeress at Sea Estate just literally said, No, you're not getting your money back. And you should actually be thankful that I'm not chasing you for some of the dividends you took out. What it does though, is it makes it extremely easy to fence the proceeds of a fraud uh, compared to fencing the proceeds of a uh, robbery. If you steal a car, then you are on a world of trouble because the owner of the car you stole is going to be looking out for it. You might have to respray it, file serial numbers off the parts It's a real pain in the neck. If you steal a dozen cars through a long firm, then the motor manufacturer is going to expect to see those cars on the forecourt of your auto dealership being sold for cash because he doesn't know that you're a fraud yet. Uh, J.K. Galbraith, the economist, actually said that this can be macroeconomically important for some time because fraud involves this time dimension as well as the trust dimension, there is a period of time during which the criminal knows that he's got the profits, but the victim doesn't yet know that he's lost them. And for that period, the national psychic wealth is greatly increased. And then it's only when you have something like a uh, stock market crash and uh, Bernard Madoff's fund collapses that everyone suddenly realizes that they're a few billion dollars poorer than they thought they were.
0: Yeah. well I, I wanted to come back to the, the point you made about um you know a large number of stock exchange flotations in the 19th century being being frauds both in mm-hmm. london and and, and and new York and then you you mentioned the dot-com uh, bubble of the 1990s as well um you know in the, when the when these 19th century frauds happened a lot of changes were made to company law and there were compulsory audits brought in and you know we fast forward 150 years or whatever and suddenly we have the Wirecard scandal where the auditors signed off on the books of the company and then suddenly there was, there was $2 billion missing or €2 billion. Euros and, uh, and you know. What, so what does this tell us about the mechanisms we have in place to try and detect fraud? Uh, it tells us that we get what we pay for, to be honest. Uh, Wirecard is
1: hilarious because this is the exact same fraud as Parmalat, the Italian milk company, uh, from uh, back in the uh, 2000s you know you've got a whole load of sales to obscure companies that no one's really allowed to know where they are and there's definitely cash proceeds but they're all piled up in a bank in an emerging market where no one except the finance director is allowed to talk to them and the auditors sign off on it for a period of years until it's discovered you know what a surprise uh, that bank account never existed the trouble here is you know and it is an endemic problem in audit that will that keeps on recurring and when you see a problem that keeps on recurring in different situations you know that it's some kind of equilibrium, it's some kind of incentive that's producing it and in audit the problem is just simply that it's it's underpriced you know, everyone pays more cop money and they want Sherlock Holmes service from the auditors right. and the reason that everyone pays more cop money is that audit is a service that's almost never needed you know it's not like uh, toilet paper it's not something that you don't want but you have to buy it it's because you need it it's something that you don't want in most cases don't need uh, but you have to buy it because it's a regulatory requirement it should not surprise anyone that most audits are done very badly you know
0: yeah so it's, it's like buying your you know 30 pounds or 40 pounds Global travel insurance, uh, which you don't expect to have to use, I mean, maybe. It, you know, if you're in a life-threatening situation, it's it's valuable. But often, when you come to claim on it, it doesn't. It's not worth uh, not worth having. It doesn't pay out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, no one cares about the quality of the audit that they're buying. Uh, not yeah. least, of course, because in a lot of these cases, the person who's making the decision to buy the audit, you know, it's the fraudster and yeah, um, you know, so uh, you you should never expect an audit to be able to protect you against fraud by the finance director. Uh, the other thing, actually, what that I say in the book is that most auditors are not crooks. You know, the vast majority of auditors are actually really nice people working under horrific circumstances who are given nothing like enough respect in their accountancy firms, but the bad apples get drawn to auditing the bad companies because the bad companies will keep on churning until they find a bad auditor who could be just a bad person or he could be a good person who can be lent on you know because an auditor with no spine is you know as useful as a crook in most cases and when they found one that they like they will hang on to them and so you get this situation in which the audit profession just sees the normal auditors and sees the good guys and underestimates the extent to which there are bad guys and the extent to which the bad guys end up in situations in which they can do uh, harm.
0: Yeah. So if we as investors can't necessarily trust the word of the auditors and we can't necessarily trust the regulators to prevent dodgy companies from listing their shares and selling their bonds and making other kinds of financial promotions. You know, what can we as individuals do to try and spot that something fishy might be going on? Well, this is what diversification is for. You know,
1: um, basically, you, you can, to an extent, trust the regulators to keep it under some degree of control most of the time, you know. If you, you know, it's not even when it was a sixth of the companies on the stock exchange that were frauds, people still made money on the London Stock Exchange. Um, in tech investing, it's particularly interesting because in tech investing, everyone fakes demos. You know, Steve Jobs faked demos, Bill Gates faked demos, um, Larry Ellison he faked demos. So So they did the same thing
0: as Enron did when they were pretending to be trading, you know, gas on that uh, trading floor and they were just, it was all fictitious.
1: um, Yeah, I mean, to to a large extent, you know, most tech demos seem to be fakes. So if you look at like Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, um, it's not 100% clear that what they were doing at that time was particularly out of the normal scope of what goes on in the tech industry. It was massively out of scope of what goes on in the medical industry. So the lesson from the Theranos fraud is definitely don't get involved in something that's incredibly heavily regulated. But the point I would make here is that if you were a brilliant fraud spotter in tech, you would have had to have got a lot of things right uh, to compensate you for missing Microsoft or for looking at Apple and saying, I don't know, some of these demos look dodgy to me. I'm going to stay clear of this guy. Yeah. I mean, as investors, you kind of almost have to trust in diversification. You know, there are some things that obviously, you know, are more vulnerable than others. You know, Canadian mining stocks, you go into with eyes open that you are gambling. You know, Chinese reverse mergers, you go into with the knowledge that there is a decent chance that you could lose all your money. For people who professionally spot frauds, your biggest asset is a list of people who have been involved in previous companies that turned out to be frauds. Because the same directors, same lawyers, same bankers, they always seem to come back to the well. And in general most places in the world are pretty bad at putting people in jail uh, for financial crimes and pretty yeah. bad at putting them in a position where they are banned from uh, coming back to the financial industry.
0: Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you about cryptocurrencies because um, I, if you think about the long firm type of fraud uh, or the counterfeiting Type of fraud, yeah, yeah. A, if I understand it, it's a it's a it's an abuse of trust. So in the long term, you're you're borrowing money for or borrowing goods from somebody without any intent to repay, and so you're abusing the trust of the person who's lent them to you. And in the counterfeiting uh, situation, you know you're you're abusing the trust of the people who believe in the numbers or or whatever it is. Whereas in, you know in Bitcoin, it's a, it's a completely the. Opposite situation, or at least it seems to be that you're assuming that you, the person you're dealing with on the network is your adversary. There's no assumption of trust. You may be using a trusted entity like a like an exchange at some point when you're dealing with Bitcoin, but the a- actual structure of the or the network itself doesn't assume any any trust. What do you make of that as a as a kind of different way of doing things?
1: Well, I mean, Bitcoin it's it's a classic example of the uh, sort of thing that we were talking about earlier when we were talking about the um, Silk Road in the online drug markets. Uh, the the trust-free architecture of most cryptocurrencies is actually pretty good. You know, um, Bitcoin in general, the Bitcoin protocol works. The Bitcoin protocol ensures that someone can't double spend the coins, and it ensures that once your Bitcoin transaction has been transferred to you and validated across the network, then uh, you are secure for that. So you don't need to trust anyone at all if you follow the Bitcoin protocol. On the other hand, doing so is monster inconvenience. And so yeah. people use sec- third-party providers. People use kind of things like, what was it, uh, MTGOX and uh, yeah. stuff like that. Who And yeah. they effectively put someone in a position where they can steal all your Bitcoins, which is just really yeah. no different from banking. And then, of course, in the context of a bunch of other crypto uh, s- currencies, you are trusting that the original white paper wasn't complete garbage cut and pasted off the net, and there is some uh, prospect to actually do something with the tokens that you've exchanged valuable dollars for, or in the yeah. case of stable coins, you know, if you look at tether, I've had a lot of people asking me about tether over the last uh, couple of months, and I am nervous getting into it because I'm nervous of the amount of work it would take to establish what's going on there
0: but well if you find out if you find out what's going on there let us know because it's such a it's such an interesting uh, such an interesting case yeah. but anyway let's uh,
1: I mean, the, the underlying risk that's there is the underlying risk of a bank you know yeah. you've got your stable coin which acts like a liability and that liability might be matched by an asset or it might not and so to my mind whatever the technology the fundamental economic relationship the fundamental trust relationship there is exactly the same as uh, bank deposit.
0: right so uh, when it when it comes to the bitcoin protocol you're saying it that that in itself it's secure but there's a, a, another kind of i guess equilibrium decision involved because the complexity of dealing with it you know as an individual is is high and the chance of you getting it wrong is high and sending your coins to the wrong address or losing your private key you know that's why we deal with trusted entities and then we're back to the same situation we started with with other types of potential fraud
1: yeah i mean trust is super cheap when you consider you know the costs and benefits of uh, various kind of technologies for avoiding fraud or technologies for preventing fraud trust is incredibly cheap you know that's why it's a good idea to use it whenever you can you know that's why that's why canadians trust people in a suit it saves so much time you get so much more done if you if you if you trust the people around you some yeah. of the risk of that is that you may end up trusting the wrong people but uh yeah. you know you can still you, you know as i say it's, the optimal level is not zero you can still come out ahead even losing quite a lot to uh, fraud and theft
0: so as the Russian saying goes, trust, but verify.
1: <laughs> what is it? Uh, trust in Allah, but tie up your camel. <laughs>
0: That's it. Dan, I could have uh, could go on for much longer with you, but we ran run out of time. Thank you very much for the very interesting chat and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Thanks very much, Bob. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can find a write-up of this episode at our website, newmoneyreview.com, together with links to any important documents or sites mentioned during the discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website.